for a scripture reading. Um, we'll be jumping around a little bit here, but the first reference will be Genesis 3, verse 15. Genesis three fifteen. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Second one, uh, Genesis 12, verses 1 through 3. Genesis 12, 1 through 3. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. And in him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Now going to Revelation 19, <clears throat> verses 6 through 16. Revelation 19, 6 through 16. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Alleluia, for the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exalt and give him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted to her to clothe herself with fine linen and bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, Write this, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are the words of God. Then I fell down at his feet to worship him, and he said to me, You must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold, you, who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, the one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen and white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with the rod of iron. He will tread the winepress with the fury of the wrath of God, the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. This morning in our, in our time, we want to look at Colossians 1. We want to consider Christ. Our scripture readings gave us, in Genesis, the foundation of Christ's coming, and in Revelation, the ultimate end of His coming, His Lordship. But who is Christ to you? Who is Christ to our church? Who is Christ to our world? Our text uses a word, preeminent. And so I would ask you, 
what is preeminent in your life? In other words, what is most important? What are the things that really make you get to work and do things? What will cause you to back into a corner and never move? Now, I'm not talking about what you like or what you prefer. I like my toast a little bit darker than some people. It's not pref- I'm not talking about preference here. I'm talking about what is truly and ultimately important. Again, you may have a preference of which kind of car you drive, but if you're cold and stranded, that brand preference disappears. But what are the things that you will never compromise, that you will never back away from? I think if we're honest, the place most of us start is our families. When things get down to it, our families and those close to us are the ones which we will stand with, which we will not turn away from, which we won't run away from. Whether we agree with them or not, they are our flesh and blood, and we will care for them. Second, I think we would say, our Christian beliefs. We are willing to seek knowledge and understanding in in many different fields, and we should be encouraged to do so. And what we believe about God and reality should be at the core of those pursuits. But those pursuits don't necessarily define the core of us. In reality, what we believe about God, what we believe about Jesus, those things in reality are what shapes us into who we are. And we hold those beliefs quite differently than we do a preference. And maybe we should change how we define what is important. Maybe we should ask the question, what are you willing to die for? And honestly, I think there's only certain things that rise to that level of importance. And we can't place every detail, even of our beliefs, into that level. Okay, so we will have preferences. We have, we'll have things that we think are good and right, but we won't necessarily die for them. But there are things that we will die for. And specifically, as we consider our Christian beliefs and the things we understand about God, uh, we understand that we hold some of those things at different levels. And God himself did this. So in the Old Testament, God gave us the Ten Commandments. And while he gave a much larger law with dietary laws, with rules about this and that and other things, they were somewhat summed up in the core of the Ten Commandments. But Jesus himself actually reduced that even to a a tighter level of importance. And he said, what is the sum of all the law? It is to love God and to keep his commandments and to love your neighbor as yourself. 
So what about us Christians today, living 2,000 years after Christ, living in the covenant of grace? Are there primary truths that we should hold at a different level than the rest of our understandings? Are there specific things that we should hold tighter? Are there specific things that we should be willing to die for? Another way I think that we should think about this is when people encounter us, when people come around us, what do we want them to say about us? What would we have them identify as our focus. And so if someone who never knew who Calvary Mennonite Fellowship was, somebody from totally somewhere else, came into our community and was among us, what would they say is our primary identity? Would they be, be able to identify what is most important? Now I personally think that the church in the United States, has muddied this water. Due to our freedom and our wealth, we have had the opportunity, the liberty, to split in all sorts of different groups and factions. That, if we're honest, are focused on particular strains of Christian belief and truth. And this focus is good. We Mennonites we focused on discipleship. That the true believer in Christ becomes a disciple or a true follower of God's way. This is not merely an intellectual decision. This is not merely an agreement to a certain number of truths. This is a declaration that says, I'm a follower and it will change how I behave and live in the world. We have focused on the way of peacefulness, that violence is not the way Jesus' followers deal with conflict. On the other hand, there's other denominations that have focused on a very right understanding of Scripture. Some have focused on what it means to have the presence of the Holy Spirit. Some have focused on transforming our culture. Now, all of these, we must admit, are good, right, and Christian endeavors. One denomination does not hold a higher priority than others. I think the denominations exist because we've tended to follow different strains of pursuit. But I wonder if in America, if we have not pursued them, at the expense of some of the preeminent things. Our text today attempts to define what is preeminent, what should be preeminent in our faith. And again, may we allow this scripture to teach us. Our text is Colossians 1. I'll begin reading at verse 9 and read to verse 23. This is God's word. He is the image, excuse me. And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, 
asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. May you be strengthened with all power, according to his glorious might, for our endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you, who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh By his death, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. This is God's word. I'm to um, order everything I want to say into kind of one main idea, what I'd like to say is that what we know and what we believe about Jesus should be the center of our faith and the primary driver of our obedience. What we know and what we believe about Jesus should be the center of our faith and the primary driver of our obedience. Before we launch in, there's, there's two terms I'd like to sort of define. The first is the idea of preeminence. The, the idea that, that there is a first order of ranking. The scripture here tells us that in many different ways, Jesus is preeminent. He is of high exaltation. He is not merely human. He is creator. He is God. He is Lord. So we must keep that idea in mind. The second is the the idea of knowing versus having faith. And I think this division, this, this idea that we can know something, but have faith, and having faith in something is different, I think is, is actually a, a post-enlightenment idea. This idea that you can go seeking knowledge in a, a merely intellectual way and have it not shape you. 
You see, to truly know something is to definitively be shaped by it. And I think the ancients would not have made that separation. That somehow I can exist over here in the intellectual realm and I can pursue knowledge, I can pursue understanding, but then I live totally divorced from that knowledge. I think the scripture would tell us that that's not knowledge. That that is something that puffs us up. And so I I think in scriptural terms, this idea of knowing is intrinsically tied with it being absorbed into our life and it changing us. And so when we use the idea of knowing Christ, it's not merely an intellectual understanding of the different natures of Christ. It's actually having those natures change us. And so our first task here this morning is to wade through this uh, bit of theological understanding about who Christ is and think, How could that shape us? What does it mean to know these things about Jesus and how should that change us? And then we'll ask that question at the end. So, what does all this knowledge do for us? So the text gives us five or six specific truths about who Jesus is. And it begins there in verse 15. He is the image of of the invisible God. And later on, it says that all the fullness of God dwells in Him. And so, apart from Moses and possibly Elijah, no man has seen God. And so He is invisible to us. He is not known to us in a physical sense. He is not known to us in a human sense. But this scripture tells us that in Jesus, we have the full image of God. As we know Jesus, we know the Father. And it's not just a portion. It's all the fullness of God. Secondly, it states that all things were created through him. Uh, Verse 16, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth. So looking at the physical realm, everything we see is due to the creative genius of Christ. And interestingly, he speaks about the physical realm, and then he speaks about politics. Interesting place for us in this particular week. Whether thrones or dominions or powers, whether presidents or congresses or rulers or leaders, all of these things are under the creative genius of Christ. And they exist for His purposes. They exist under His sovereignty. And so... Our current president is the plan and purpose, is in the plan and purpose of Christ. It's not an accident. Our previous president was not an accident either. He was in the plan and purpose of Christ. In verse 18, he is the firstborn. 
He is before all things. And in here we refer back to the Jewish understanding of firstborn. And in that, that person, it's not in our day where the inheritance and the power of the family was passed equally to the children. It was to the firstborn. And so he, in a sense, was sort of like the only child. So Jesus is the first, the one, the only. And then Paul turns his focus on the church as it relates to Christ. And it says that Christ is the head of the church. First of all, he started it. Uh, Verse 18, he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning. And so the church, the idea was not the, the, the kind of development in the idea of the apostles. Jesus is gone now, and we got to figure something out. Let's start this church thing. No, it was Jesus' idea. It was under his direction. He is the beginning of the church. It says that he redeemed it. Uh, Verse 19, for through him to reconcile to himself all things. And so Jesus not merely started the church, but he is the redeemer of it. And he should be preeminent in it. Along with that, he is the reconciler of humanity to God. Uh, We see that as well um, in verse 20. Uh, Through him to reconcile to himself all things. And he again makes some interesting ideas that we as humans were not towards God. That this idea of reconciliation wasn't that we were just a little bit apart, but that we were alienated. We were enemies of God. And Christ came into not a friendly territory, but he came into enemy territory and he reconciled us with God. And how did he do so? It says he was reconciled in his sacrifice on the cross, reconciled in his body of flesh by his death. So it was the laying down of his life on our behalf that accomplishes that reconciliation. And what is the purpose of that? In order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach. So somehow in Christ, in his death on the cross, we alienated enemies of God are now holy blameless, and right. These are things that Christ himself accomplishes. Apart from human, apart from our actions, apart from anything we have to offer, Christ does these things entirely. Let's consider this order in reverse. We see Christ as the reconciler of humanity, the savior of man. Those saved men are part of the church that he began, that are under his lordship, that exist in his creation, under the authority and direction of God. It appears to me that Christ is truly preeminent. 
So why does understanding all of that matter? Why is it important for us to know these things? Why is it important for you to believe these things rightly about Christ? And verse 23 gives us an indication. It says, if indeed you continue in the faith, not shifting from the hope of the gospel. If indeed you continue in the faith. It matters what we believe about Christ. It matters what we believe about God. We cannot assign to him an alternate definition and still expect his reconciliation. You see, when we each of us face God in eternity, the question isn't whether you have a good enough body of works, whether the scale balances out for you. That's not the question. The question is if you know him, or more importantly, if he knows you. You see, some came and said, Lord, Lord, look at all we've done in your name. And he says, I don't know you. And so the important reality is to know him. And so we have this phrase, if indeed you continue in the faith. It should not be said to mean that God has done his part and now it's your turn to do your part. Okay, so God did all of this and now you need to pick up the rest of it. Okay, that shouldn't be construed to say that. What it is is an acknowledgement that there are many false teachers, there are many false understandings of who Christ and God is. And in, in Paul's time, these teachers were drawing away these young Christians, away to a different understanding of who Christ was. And so Paul is calling them to remain in the true understanding of Christ, remain in the true understanding of God. They are to seek a deeper and clearer understanding of who Christ is. This is faith in the gospel. It's faith in a Christ. It is not faith in a system. It's not faith in, an, in a knowing, in an intellectual way. It's a faith in a Christ. And now we acknowledge that, again, without the call and conviction of the Spirit, no one turns away from that alienated state. And so this is primarily an action of Christ. I'll take the risk of uh, quoting John Calvin here. He says, Here we have an exhortation to perseverance, by which he admonishes them that all the grace that had been conferred upon them hitherto would be vain, unless they persevered in the purity of the gospel. Yes, that is John Calvin arguing for perseverance. The gospel is not free to our inventions. It's not free to our changes. It's not free for us to adjust things that suit us. We must hold and persevere into the true understanding of Christ. We cannot claim salvation in a Christ that does not exist. And we must admit that many in our world do so. Many chase after a Christ who is a redefinition of, of who the Bible presents him to be. Either he was a Jewish Gandhi, or he is an anti-Roman activist, or he is 
a wise man with many good sayings, or he is a peace activist, or many of those things. But he wasn't preeminent. And you will find that in all of these counterfeits. In all of them, Christ is not preeminent. And that is why this Jesus is different. It's because he is God. He created everything we see. He sustains all earthly activity. He is the true head of the church. And he is the only way of reconciliation with God. Any other Christ is no Christ at all. Let's imagine a a small boy headed out to go fishing with his grandfather. And the plan is to meet at the the standard uh, river where they always fish. And as the boy comes down the hill to the river, he sees two grandfathers. And one grandfather is sitting in a, um, you know, the latest fishing chair. He's got a new puppy He's got a fishing rod, a full tackle box. He's got a bag of candy. He's got the boy's favorite soda pop. And he's already caught a few fish. And he calls the boy, come, come fish with me. The second grandfather just sits there and watches as the little boy walks right past the fake grandfather and over to him. Because you see, the second grandfather was the boy's true grandfather. He was his father's father. From an infant, this boy had sat upon his lap. This grandfather had taken him on a trip to Cabela's, and the rod in the boy's hand was carefully selected while they were there. This grandfather had invested in this grandson. This grandfather was at every Christmas dinner with a light in his eyes. You see, the imposter had no chance to lure the boy because he was the wrong grandfather. And his grandson knew who he was. And there was nothing the imposter could do to change that reality. When it comes to Christ, Do you know who the true Christ is? Is he preeminent in your life? Is he in every breath of air you breathe? He created it. Is everything you experience because of his creation? Is the truth of your salvation a moment to gaze upon his beauty? Has he been part of your life like that grandfather was to the young boy? Has he shown himself faithful to you as you seek to know and understand him? This knowing, brothers and sisters, is the true path to holiness. It is in knowing Christ. It is in His fully becoming preeminent in our lives that we change. Again, this is no mere acknowledgement of fact or agreement to, to mere logical arguments. This is knowing that seeks 
to truly know and understand. And if we're honest, this is a knowing that takes the full breath of life to grow into. I think the next logical question as we consider, so do I understand the true Christ? How do I know? How, how does this shape the way I live? What, what connection is there between knowing Christ and living? Well, the preface to this, I think, gives us an understanding. If we look back at verses 9 through 12, and I'll read uh, those at this point. And so, from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of His will in all spiritual wisdom, and understanding us to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power, according to His glorious might, for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. Paul requests to God a few things for these believers. The first thing he requests is that they would be filled with the knowledge of God, that they would have a right knowledge of who Christ is, a right understanding of the gospel. And then that from that knowledge, they would live. Again, this scripture doesn't have that disconnect that you can know something and not live out of it. That is, again, it's a modern idea that somehow you can know something, but it not affect how you behave. This is clear. You know God, you know Christ, you will live according to that reality. That the filling of knowledge and spiritual wisdom and understanding would guide their walk. And that that walk would bear, would bear godly fruit. And then interestingly, it turns back around. And it calls them again. That, that walking in truth, that walking in understanding, that walking in godliness, that bearing fruit, will actually bring about deeper understanding, which will bring about more fruit, which brings about more understanding. I think that order is important. We cannot merely pursue the fruit. We must pursue the knowledge that will then bear the fruit. And so as we consider our lives, as we consider the places we find brokenness, we consider the places where we acknowledge that, that our lives are not totally in tune with God's ways. Is our response to, again, focus on the fruit, to focus on the reality of who we are and attempt to order that? Or do we acknowledge that maybe we don't know Christ well enough? And we dive into His Word. We dive into prayer. We dive into knowing Him in a way that forces us to shape and change who we are. In conclusion, I would ask again, what is preeminent? What is most important? Is Christ? Is knowing Him 
the entire focus of your life? In every area of our life is knowing Christ at the center. I think that's what it means for Christ to be preeminent. Let's pray. Father, this morning, we gaze upon the beauty that is Christ. Father, help this scripture to shape our understanding of him. And Father, may that understanding and knowledge of him shape us into your true disciples. That in knowing Christ, we can show to the world around us what is truly true. That in knowing Christ, we can show forth his character. And that as a church, in knowing Christ, we as well would be about his work in our world. We pray that you would do these things in us through Christ our Savior. Amen.